The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. know the name Bill Persky, but if you're familiar at all with the Dick Van Dyke show, Kate and Allie, That Girl, or any of uh, the Bill Cosby specials, uh, your show of shows, uh, specials by Bob Hope, you'll be aware of this Emmy award-winning writer, director, and actor. He's been, if, if you're If you're talking about any classic television show, your chances are excellent that this guy's name is in the credits. If there's anybody who knows about old show business, it's this next man. So we were thrilled to be able to have a chance to talk to him. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Persky. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and I'm here with my co-star, Frank Santopadre, here on the amazing Colossal Podcast. Hello, Gilbert. Hi. How are you? Yeah, don't talk to me. Did you get your wine? Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) Now, um, you know, we have something unusual today, because usually... When you mention the word uh, television comedy writer, you think of strapping young Episcopalians. (laughs) (laughs) In in what country are you thinking? (laughs) We actually found an old Jew television (laughs) comedy writer. Shocking. (laughs) We didn't have to go very far. Now... uh, the, the name might not be familiar to people listening, but if you've listened to the following people and laughed at them, like people like Orson Welles, Peter Sellers, Sid Caesar, Julie Andrews, Sonny and Cher, Danny Thomas, Bob Hope, Mary Tyler Moore, Alan King, Steve Allen, Bill Cosby, Joey Bishop, Tim Conway, Harvey Carman, Don Knotts, Jay Leno, Martin Mull, Betty White, and George Siegel, just to name a few. And La- that was my first week. <laughs> <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, Bill Persky. Hello. Hey, it's, it's funny because for so long it was like I was p- partners with Sam Denoff. Mm-hmm. You know, we were partners for 20 years. So sometimes people would call me Persky and Denoff. But it's like when we were writing comedy back then, I don't know if it's still true now, but the comedy writing teams were known as the boys. Didn't matter how old you were, the boys. 
that's like on Abbott and Costello's TV show. It always made me laugh when uh, Fred uh, Sitfields would go, boys, boys. Well, the funniest is there was a meeting where one of the comedy writers, Larry Marks's partner, couldn't make it, and they went into the producer and... And Larry Marks sat down, and the producer said, boys, <laughs> they just, there was no individuals. It was boys. That's what you were. <laughs> and all the boys are now like me, old boys. <laughs> we should say, too, that we're in the Society of Illustrators right now at a uh, showing for uh, Drew, the artist Drew Friedman. Oh, yes. We'll be coming up on a podcast. Yeah, his artwork is unbelievable. All over, lining unbelievable. the walls. And Billy was just walking around the room and saying, I've worked with almost every one of these people. Jesus. Wow. And, and I'm still here in their pictures. Wow. Maury Amsterdam looking right at me. I did the Van Dyke show. For, oh, yeah. And Maury. You know, the funny thing is when, when in the, you have an audience show, you do a warm up. And. When Maury would do the warm-up, the show would get off to a very bad start. And Carl realized that Maury's humor was nothing like the humor of the show. So Maury would have people screaming and laughing, and then the show would start, and it would be nice. It would be about life. It would be funny. It would, you know, there'd be no shtick in it all. And Carl said, Maury, you're not doing the warm-ups anymore. He said, they're crazy about me. He says, you're a hit, but the show is dying. So Maury was that strong. Maury, the- oh, Maury was Maury was the fast. I think Maury was one of the fastest joke people I, I ever met. I mean, you, you know, you didn't finish the setup before he. And you also, Tom Leopold was on, who who is mm-hmm. one of the funniest He'll people. He'll be coming I back to met. do it again. Yeah, and Tommy is a kind of a writer who, as he's telling you the joke, he rewrites it, and it becomes a different joke out of his mouth. I said, what happened to the original thing you were going to say? <laughs> I said, I, I got tired of it. Now, I heard Maury also used to write for Rosemary. Yes, yes. They had, a, they had a great, great relationship. You know, another thing, here's an interesting thing about Maury. Maury played Las Vegas when it first... <laughs> When they first opened it, before anybody even got killed there. <laughs> and he played a club, and he, he uh, shot craps. And he had a great run, and he made about $20,000. And so he, didn't, he said, what am I going to do with this? His wife said, let's buy some property. So back in the early 40s, Maury bought about 12 square blocks of downtown Las Vegas. It was a desert then, you yeah. know. And then it's worth it was worth billions of dollars. But that's because, you know, if they'd had a jewelry store, his wife would have probably wanted they didn't have anything there except desert. So he bought desert. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even have dinner in those days. One thing I always want to know is Maury was Maury's character, was Buddy Sorrell based on a real person because Sally Rogers was supposedly partially on based Selma on, on Selma Dime? Yeah. Uh, no, Maury was just based on funny. You know, he was an amalgam of several people. And he, was he? Maury never understood. He understood where the humor was. He didn't understand stories particularly. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't care. He didn't care. But he was. He was. He was delightful. He was the sweetest man. I never heard him say a bad thing about anybody. You know. Well, if you own twelve blocks of Las Vegas, mm-hmm. what are you going <laughs> to? Who are you going to be mad at? Now, can you tell us how you started out? 
in this long uh, writing career you've had? I got a job for $30 a week at WNEW Radio back in 1955 as an assistant. I got an ad. It was an ad in New York Times and it was for an assistant in the continuity department. I had no idea what a continuity department was. <laughs> and I went up there, and this guy said, uh, okay, uh, write a jingle and write a funny thing. And, and then he went out to lunch, and I was sitting there, and I said, I don't know how to write a jingle. <laughs> so I wrote a jingle, and I did a thing, and I got the job for $30 a week. And I still had no idea what the continuity department was. That guy had gone out to lunch to interview for another job. So when he came back, he had that job, and I was now head of the continuity department. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea. I went in four hours from being in the continuity department to being the continuity department. So what it, what it actually was is... You know, the disc jockey, and, and back then, WNEW was a radio station. There was nothing like it. It had William B. Williams, and it had Clavin and Finch in the morning. I mean, these are classic, you know, the make-believe ballroom, mm -hmm. the milkman. They invented the, the music and news format. So the continuity department was that every disc jockey show had a book, like a notebook, and the first thing was, hi, how are you? It's the date, and the weather is this, and then... I, now we're going to play so-and-so, and then the commercial. And it was really just putting the book together. Of, it was the most tedious job in the world. So out of nowhere, I just started to write little jokes. And then I had to hire somebody to be my assistant who would also not know what the continuity department was. <laughs> and Sam Denoff came in. And Sam had been the bargain broadcaster at Klein's department store, which is not even there anymore. But he used to make the announcement, ladies, there is a truckload of fancy Italian shoes on the seventh floor. And people would run and they'd <laughs> kill one another to get there. And he got fired because... One day he said, ladies, we have two truckloads of maiden form brassiers, and this is a bust-out sale. <laughs> and that was the end of him. So then he came to work. So then the two of us started to uh, put the jokes on, and the guys would laugh at them. And then William B. Williams started to read them, and the, owner, the head of the station said, that's fun. You guys do that, right? So... You were writing jokes for the, for the we're disc writing, jockeys? Yeah, we were writing jokes for the disc jockeys. And uh, then there was a Christmas party, and Sam and I wrote a show that we did. You know, a satire thing was fun. And this kid came up to us, and he said, uh, I would like to represent you. I'm with the William Morris office. I'd like to be your agent. And, I mean, the thought of that was just – there was – never dawned on us that, that that could happen. And we said, well, that's great. And he said, well, I don't have my cards yet because I just got out of the mail room today. <laughs> I said, I don't care if you're still in the mail room or if you ever get cards. And it turned out that was George Shapiro. George Shapiro is Jerry, discovered Jerry Seinfeld, and he's Jerry Seinfeld's manager. He discovered Andy Kaufman. 
I mean, George Shapiro is probably the most successful manager, in the world, and he was our agent. And in, in those days, everyone in the Morris office was short, you know, because <laughs> Mr. Lastvogel, who, who owned the agency, he was short, and he never wanted to go like that. He always wanted to look down at people, so we be talking. <laughs> and uh, they were killers. They were short little killers going around. And George was the toughest guy in the world. When we started writing stand-up stuff for comics you've never heard of, and he would say, the boys get $100 up front or not a word goes on paper. And the guy said, well, we don't know if they're funny. He said, would I represent them if they weren't? So that's how we got started. And our first check we ever got, there was a comedian by the name of Jimmy Casanova. <laughs> Jimmy Casanova. Jimmy Casanova. That, that name mean anything to you, Gilbert? <laughs> so now we meet with Jimmy Casanova. I swear this is the truth. And we said, we have a great idea for a routine by, based on your name. And he said, what's funny about Jimmy? <laughs> As I said, comics you've never heard of for good reason. But the funniest is... We wrote him a whole thing that he did at one of those wedding chapels out in, in, on Queens Boulevard, you know, with the dinner and everything and the show. And uh, he was awful. The food was awful. I think that the bride and groom probably got divorced. They were awful. <laughs> and he owed us $500 because we did five minutes. So he signed over a check for $650 that was a settlement from an insurance claim he had for an accident he had in the revolving door at Bloomingdale. <laughs> <laughs> but he owed us five, and the check was for six fifty, and he wouldn't take a check. We, <laughs> we had to give him cash. And so then we started writing for... Just anybody that George could find. We wrote for Ron, Ca Ron Carey when he was in high school. Wow. And uh, he was hilarious. And we wrote for a series of, of teams. There were a lot of teams then. Everybody wanted to be the next Martin and Lewis, which there never was, obviously. But uh, we wrote for Taylor and Mitchell. And then uh, Taylor, and, Taylor and Stewart. And Taylor and Stewart broke up. And it became Taylor and somebody else. And Taylor and somebody else. <laughs> and Taylor and somebody else. And finally... We said, you know, the problem is Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> so the last guy he worked with, Mitchell, was really good. And so he got a new partner. And they were represented by Joe Scandori, who was, was also Don Rickles' agent. And, you know, Rickles was just getting started then. But Joe Scandori's biggest thing was that he was the manager and the son-in-law of the owner of the Elegante nightclub on Ocean Parkway, which was the off-Broadway version of the Copa. In other words, it was very connected, and, and a lot of people started there and, and stuff. But that was Joe brought all of his acts in, and we would write stuff for them. And the first thing we wrote was for for. Uh, Mitchell and Sean, who who uh, we wrote a thing hot off the front page about astronauts. They had just announced that there would be astronauts. Now, the uh, am I talking Not too much? No, no. I, mean, I want to hear. No, what you're 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 like my perfect 
guess. Oh, okay. Where, okay. where you just put you there, and I okay. can take a nap. Okay. <laughs> I'll put you to sleep. So, anyway, the, you got to understand a little thing about the Elegante. It was, on the weekends, it was a big date place, right? But they kept it open during the week by selling the concept that your organization could have up their celebration or their swearing into their officers or their dance or whatever it was, and it was $20 a couple, and you got dinner and drinks and a show, and it was 20 and it was great. The only thing is they told, like, five different organizations that they had the club. So when they got there, it was a mob. I mean, you'd have the German-American <laughs> bun sitting next to the B'nai Brit, you know? So... You literally, <laughs> you literally had these people who hated one another, and they hated the club because they thought, well, this is our event. We're having the swearing in. <laughs> so the first thing is Joe would send everybody a bottle of wine, and then there was a guy who, when the show came, the food was great. They, although I must say, I never had anything but veal parmesan there. Uh, Joe would say, he talked like this. <laughs> And he'd say, uh, give the boys whatever they want. <laughs> so you look at the menu, and we'd order lobster, and we'd order this. And by the time the show started, you know, and you were eating, and it was dark, and, I'm, and I said, this lobster tastes like it's got cheese on it. <laughs> so everything I ever ordered ended up being veal parmesan. But at any rate, the, the MC, which was like he was the first... SEAL team member. I mean, that's how courageous you had to be to go up in front of this mob and try and turn him into an audience. He was fearless. And then the show would come on, and they'd have a dance team, and then they'd have this Italian woman, I forget her name, and she would she would make fart sounds during her song. She sang all these great Italian songs class show. and doing things like that. And she was doing that. And we were writing Blue Angel-type material. <laughs> so we wrote this thing about the first astronaut, and they went out, and nobody knew what an astronaut was. <laughs> It would, it, we thought we were so current, but no one knew what it was. And they're talking, I'm up here on the moon. And people are looking and saying, what the? <laughs> what's he doing on the moon? And what's Houston? And translate. Cape, can, they had no idea. So now, and I, you know, these, I, I, I wrote a book about my life called My Life is Situation Comedy. So these stories are all in it, but they're relevant because they happened. Uh, and... Uh, I always said, in those days, every nightclub, they were all tough places. I mean, I'll just digress for a second. Joey Bishop was on the road in Scranton, outside of Scranton, working at a nightclub. And in the middle of his act, two guys came in and held the place up. <laughs> and, and Bishop panics. And they said, keep talking, kid. So he's talking, and people, they're going around taking everybody's money and everything. And then they finish, and they start to leave. And they said, you're good. Keep going. And now they sit down. They got guns. <laughs> <laughs> and he finishes doing that, his act. And on the way out, they toss him a watch that they just stole <laughs> from, from somebody else. 
So in those days, the nightclub business was really tough because a lot of the smaller joints were really strippers, and they didn't care about the comics. They came out while the girl went on to put on new clothes to take off. And anyway, uh, oh, God, they were, they were great days, great days. So I, I said, and it's true, you call any nightclub in America and say, is Rocco there? And they'll say, speaking or just a minute. <laughs> At the Elegante, it was so tough, they said, which one? <laughs> they literally had two Roccos. <laughs> How much time did you guys spend writing for comics before you, made, you were able five to years. jump to five, TV? Five years. And the first TV gig was the Steve Allen yeah, show? Yeah, but I got to tell you one, because I'm looking at Marty Allen uh-huh. on the wall. There. Uh-huh. Our big breakthrough was that we were going to write for Alan and got a chance to write for Alan and Rossi. George okay. said, because uh, we had gotten a reputation already, you know. So they, they were like it. And this was at the Copa. And we're sitting ringside at the Copa and drinks and stuff and everything. And they go on, and I hated them. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's like, it's like I wouldn't have wanted to write for them if they paid me. It's like the comedy version for me of going on a cruise with, with a whole bunch of people I didn't invite, you know. And now here I am and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I just then what are you going to say, you know? So they come off, and their shirts are open, and people are <laughs> doing, and I'm sitting there, and I'm saying to Sam, what the hell are we going to say to these guys? So they come over, and they're giving us, huh? huh? Wiping sweat off, throwing it at us and everything. And they says, so what do you think? And I said, you sure do 45 minutes. <laughs> and they took that. As the biggest compliment in the world. Yeah, well, you know, all I did was tell them how long they were on. We, we just interviewed Marty Allen last week, Bill. I don't so we'll care. be sure to run these two back to I don't back. care. I'll tell them to his face. I hated them. I hate We'll we, run these two we, consecutively. We should have had you on together. <laughs> no, I hate because, you know, there are certain people you say you can write for. Yes. And, I mean, I, I could no more write for them than, than you know, for Hitler. And... and and uh, it's, it's the first time I would have actually done all right with him. I mean, I could have thought. Of, I didn't want to know where to start with them. You know, I'm, I'm a man who wrote about the first astronaut. It's the first time I've heard of Alan and Rossi compared to Hitler. <laughs> no, they, they, he was a very sweet guy. God knows. But it's just like I'm saying, God, I don't think they're funny. What are we going to do? You know? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Now and then you started writing for that first big break was Dick Sean. Oh, okay. Was Sean half of that comedy team? No, 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 no. I just Mitchell and I couldn't Sean. think of the oh, name. Okay. I just thought Dick Sean that sounded like a comedy team. But Dick Sean was this great comic, and his manager was a guy by the name Pierre Cassette, and he saw something we, that we did, and he he was a friend of Joe Scandori's, and he said those guys are good, and Dick needs a hunk, and so. We said, we met him, and Dick wanted to do something. Lolita had just come out, the thing. And he said, I want to do uh, something about Lolita. So we wrote a 20-minute 
musical comedy version of Lolita for him. And we saw him do it only once down at the Deauville in Miami. And, it, and he, was, he was brilliant in it. And, and uh, as a result of that, George, oh, this, is, this is, George moved out to L.A. to work in television after he had set us up with all these comics and stuff. And he went out to do the Steve Allen show. And he said, I'm going to get you to California and be on television. That's my next assignment. And sure enough, the Steve Allen show came up, and he was the agent on it, and he talked us up. And so he said, I want you to send some material to Bill Dana was going to be the, the producer. He said, I want you to send some material to Steve. So by that time, we had 10 pounds of comedy material. So we packed it up, and we sent it to Steve. He was in San Francisco. And by the time it got to San Francisco, he had already left. So they said, we'll send it to Bill Dana. He's in Vegas. So then they sent it to Bill Dana in Vegas, and he had left. So Steve was that it went to about 11 cities. No one ever saw it. <laughs> so your package was following No one Steve ever Allen. saw it. I don't think we ever made back the postage. <laughs> but anyway... With all that's going on, and there's so much talk about it, well, the material's here, and it weighs a, four, a ton, and it's so, and Steve, and so-and-so, and George is talking us up, and we get the job without anybody ever seeing the material. And I swear to God, this is the truth. I had an apartment on uh, 81st Street, West 81st Street, and we had, by now I was earning $75 a week at WNEW, which back then was, you know, pretty good. You know, that was when you say, I remember a bunch of guys sitting around saying, what would you like to earn? And I said, I would, well, the biggest thing you could earn was 100 a week. I mean, there was no more money in the world than $100 a week. That was it. And so I was sitting with a bunch of guys and they said, what would, well, what would you like to someday earn? I said, I would like to earn my age every year. And they said, you mean when you're 35, you want to be earning $35,000 a year? I said, yeah. I said, what, are you crazy? Who would? I said, I would sign with the devil right now to just earn my age every year. So 75, they gave us $500 a piece, but a guarantee for three weeks. And then we were picked up for three more weeks, and then if it worked out, we'd be picked up for three more. My wife was pregnant, and Sammy and I just said, you know what, this is it. It's never going to get any easier. We're never going to suddenly arrive. we got to take the shot and, and do it. So as I'm leaving the apartment to get into the cab to go to the airport, a <laughs> postman shows up with this package covered in stamps. <laughs> and now weighs 11 pounds just from the postage and it was the 10 pounds of material which proves that it's more important to have 10 pounds of comedy material than for anybody to ever see it so you really got the job on the strength of George of George, George and, and Sam had worked as a page with Bill Dana so he knew they knew each other, but not in any great 
friendship, but it was enough. But George, George was just great. He he wouldn't give up. So we went out there. My wife was pregnant, and uh, we had it three weeks, and it was scary. And Buck Henry was the other writer who came out from wow. New York with yeah. us. He was doing an off Broadway show, so we went out there together. And on the first show, this kid who Steve had heard about in Cleveland came on, Tim Conway. And who was it? Bill Dana or George or somebody had seen the Smothers Brothers. So they were on the first show. So that was the first things that they ever did. And Sam and I wrote a piece for uh, Bill Dana <clears throat> about... The protocol, something in the news about somebody coming to Washington and the protocol. So we wrote a thing about the protocol man, and he was the protocol man. It was one of my favorite jokes, too. And in the sketch, he was dictating a letter to his secretary, and he said, take a letter to the Shah of Zolzine. Dear Zolzine Shah. <laughs> Which only the Jews make sense. <laughs> Tim didn't understand what the hell it was. He said, I have a piece. It just went over my head, too. He said, well, Zolzain Shah means shut up. And, and, I, know, I know it in Italian. Yeah. And so Tim said, well, I have something I'd like to do. And, and that was that. How did this show? And this show only lasted five weeks. Well, the funny thing is, we're there. We, the first week, we did the thing for Tim, and he didn't want to do it. So we're not scoring very big or whatever. And now the third week is coming up, and, and uh, we don't know if we're going to get picked up. And if we don't, what the hell is going to happen to us? You know, we had $1,500 a piece, and that was it. And uh, we did a sketch on the show... Uh, Ben Ben Casey, which was a big, uh, mm -hmm. the first of the medical yes. shows mm -hmm. with Vince uh, Vince Edwards, Edwards yeah. and and uh, Stanley and Sam Jaffe. Yes, N not with the diaper from. <laughs> Gung he, he didn't wear the guy diaper from Gunga Den. He was playing the uh, the uh, head doctor, Doctor Zorba, Doctor Zorba, and. Uh, so, and Joey Foreman, you know Joey? Did you know Joey Foreman? Great impression. I know him from Get Smart. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he was on the show. And, and Steve was playing Ben Casey. And uh, Joey was playing Dr. Zorba with a, a fright wig that was about 11 feet high. <laughs> and uh, so the opening of Ben Casey was that there would be a blackboard. And on it were these chalked figures. And he had a pointer at the beginning of the show, and Dr. Zorba would say, this is the sign for man, this is the sign for woman, this is birth, this is death, and this is infinity. So the sketch, and this one joke saved my life. Show opens. This is the sign for man, this is the sign for woman, this is bite, this is death, this is infinity, and this is a pussycat. <laughs> and it was just a little chalk figure of a pussycat. And when Steve saw that, 
He got so Steve used to cackle when he lit, when something pleased him. He just cackled, and uh, he said, "Pick him up." So we got picked up for the whole season, and they were canceled on the fifth show, and we got twenty six weeks of five hundred, and, uh, and it allowed us to stay. Can can I be? Can I maybe bring the interview to a dead halt? I don't care. This is a drawing. I made when I was a teenager. Yes. And um, it, that's amazing. It, yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm surprised and, and, you got to your twenties. You, <laughs> <laughs> if you see here, birth, death, infinity. No birth. Birth, man, woman. When, birth, birth death, death, and infinity. infinity. Oh, that's hysterical. Yes. Yes. I Where's used... the pussycat? <laughs> Because I used to watch Ben Casey. Oh, that's so funny. And and I remember Ben Casey was on opposite Dr. Kildare. Yes. And and they even had, like, training cards for Ben Casey and Dr. Kildare with the gum in them. Yes. <laughs> wow. God. But that, that was, that was the, the joke, literally, that saved my life. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. If we hadn't done that... We probably wouldn't have been picked up, and God knows what what would have happened after that, you know. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. And how did you make the leap from, we jump around a little bit, though, from, from the Steve Allen show, gets canceled in five weeks, you get paid for 26. Yes. Tell us about the Van Dyke show and meeting. Well, that was a that was there was a lot of scared time in between that. Uh, Oh, tell us the bowling alley story real quickly. Oh God! Well, the first really next show that we got was the Andy Williams show, and uh, that had as its head writer a guy by the name of Mort Green, who was known as Velvet Mort because he all of his sport coats had velvet collars. And with his partner, he had written Perry Como and the Kraft Music. He, he, they were really big guys. Well, this was at the other end of his career. And then also on the show was one of the great comedy legend writers of all time, Harry Crane. I don't know if you, if you know about Harry Crane, but he was the funniest. You know, and they say about comedy writers, nicest guy in the world, can't write his name. <laughs> or funniest man in the world, don't turn your back on him. <laughs> well, Harry, Harry Crane was uh, the second verse. He was funny. And uh, he was so crafty. And the thing about Harry was he was so brilliant, he didn't have to do all the stuff that he did to manipulate, you know. So we're on the show, and... Uh, we're like the junior writers, and and this is uh, on the Andy Williams show. On the Andy Williams show, and uh, the first reading, we were doing a lot of the work, but we were not in any power position. We were lucky to get that show was produced by Bud York and Norman Lear, wow. and George had introduced us to them, and they had seen some stuff we did, and they liked us, and I owe them a lot. And uh, but anyway, we were just buried in the whole thing, and. The first reading of the script with the network and a whole bunch of people around. And we had heard about Harry and Be Careful with Harry. And, and Mort was, there was a war between them for power and stuff. And so they do the first reading. And on the second page, there's a huge laugh. 
And Harry says to the room, the boys wrote that. So I turned to Sam. I said, you know, people are wrong about him. That's what a nice thing. He never said it again. (laughs) We were there for an hour and 20 minutes, about 100 pages, and about 50 other jokes that were hysterical that we wrote. But he never mentioned it again. So we were not high on the list. So the show got canceled anyway. And and Harry had managed to survive. And, 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 you know, he was very outspoken about it. He said, guys, I had to make some sacrifices. You'll learn along the way. You'll do great. So and so and so and so. So now my baby is born. I've got a rented convertible. I don't know where the next dollar is coming from. There's a rap party. Did you ever go to a rap party where you were not wanted, but you felt, you know that feeling where everybody, and you're the people who are not coming back, you know, several, and you're not the, you're not the caterers, so what the hell are you doing? Right? So the only person who was nice to us at the rap party was Claudine Langer, who was Andy's wife, and I would have gone as a character witness for her in the murder trial. <laughs> I said, if she killed him, he deserved it. <laughs> so anyway, we're now supposed to meet these two comedians at the Covina Bowling Alley. They're playing the lounge. It's pouring rain. We don't have a job. I'm in the car. I'm thinking... I got to bring the car back. When going, I got lost. Go, who goes to Covina? You know, and going to the Covina bowling alley. We pull in. There's no parking near the place. It's pouring. We don't have umbrellas. Who has umbrellas in California, right? So we're walking. We get into the place. It's soaking wet. The air conditioning is up. I'm freezing, and the guys are on in the lounge. We got there late, and they're working, and every punchline it seems. Someone hits a strike. <laughs> and the, and, the, and the, the pins are flying and the people are screaming. And so no one laughs at them because they're not hearing anything, you know. And so we sit down with these two guys afterwards. It was the most depressing drink I've ever had. <laughs> it was Rowan and Martin. Oh, wow. Rowan and Martin. Now you told you were telling me a story. Uh, if you could tell this one right. about the great Jan. Oh Murray. Jan! Oh this. <laughs> Jan Murray had a grandchild, and he was so excited, and the whole family was excited. But he was going up for a part in a movie, so he came home. The baby had just been born. And he comes in, he gets everybody together, they're in the hospital, and he says, nobody can say anything about the baby. He says, well, what do you mean? We just had no, no announcements, nothing. I'm up for a part in a movie. I don't want them to know I'm a grandfather. It'll screw everything up. Just don't say anything about the baby. But it's the happiest. I'm thrilled. <laughs> I couldn't be happy. Don't tell anybody we have the baby. <laughs> well, she'll be good. No, shut up. Use a strange name. I have the, <laughs> I have the meeting tomorrow. Until at least tomorrow, there can be no 
grandchild. Do you understand? And, and, and that family's fighting. His wife wants to kill him. She goes, what kind of a person are you? You just had a grandchild. You haven't even seen it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know it. It doesn't exist. So now he goes in the next day to the meeting, and he walks in, and the producer looks at him. He says, oh, Jan. Yeah, what? He said, I don't know. For some reason, I thought you were older. He said, are you kidding? I'm a grandfather. <laughs> right. Oh, I tell you. I, I, and I don't think, I don't know. God bless all the guys who are around today, and they're brilliant. But they're just, there isn't the, the substance. I mean, that's not the word. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld's brilliant, and all those people are brilliant. But they're just, there isn't the suffering in the same way. There isn't the struggle in the same way as, as the great old guys had, you know? And uh, it, it, there was just Phil Foster here. Yeah. Phil Foster, one of the sweetest guys in the world. He traveled with, a, his manager was, what the hell was his manager? Great guy. They traveled with this guy who was... Uh, uh, a musician, and he he was the first guy to get polio. You know, people say, "When did you get polio?" He said, "The day it came out." <laughs> <laughs> and Vernon Duke, Vernon Duke, Vernon Vernon Duke, and line. Harry Harry Mort. That's who that's who Phil's manager was. <laughs> Honey, I don't have Alzheimer's yet. I'm remembering old names, uh, and so. They were crazy. They were funny. So now they took Duke everywhere, and he had these canes that he walked with, and he was he used to play his fingernails when music was on. He had long fingernails, and he would use them like cymbals, and he was great. So they would always they would always play tricks on him, right? So. Once they took him to the Meadowbrook, Frank Daly's Meadowbrook, they drove up, they dropped him out of the car into the guy's arms, the doorman. They said, what am I going to do? And he said, take him inside. He loves to dance. <laughs> I mean, so now, now they're driving cross country. And every night that they stop, they shave a little bit off of Duke's canes. <laughs> Just about an eighth of a minute. By the fourth night, he's, long, he's like about three quarters of an inch. And he's being very strange, and they're saying, what's wrong, Duke? He says, I don't want to say nothing. They said, well, what, what? I think I'm growing. <laughs> Harry Morton got a Volkswagen. He was the first one. He said, you can't believe the mileage in this thing. He said, they really aren't good. You know? and so, so Phil Foster and Duke every night went and put gas in his car. He was up to 150 miles a gallon. I got to be talking too much. I mean, no, no such a thing. I haven't even Let's gotten for us. started yet. <laughs> You want to tell us about the Van Dyke show and how oh, Carl Reiner, your mentor, came into your life? Oh, my God, yes. Well, everybody 
wanted to write for the Van Dyke Show. And uh, <clears throat> in those days, you would write a sample script. Now you you really can't do that because they won't look at it because they'll say, you're, you know, if we come up with a similar idea and you got to have an agent to submit it, and most young writers can't get an agent until they got a job, and you can't get a job until you get an agent. But back then, there were guys like George who loved finding people and and were proud of them. Ronnie Meyer, who is now the president of Universal, was my agent after Ronnie and uh, after George. And he took such pride in, in, in my work. I mean, he, was, it, he loved it, and he loved the, when I'd get a job, and he loved when I won an award, and you know. But at any rate, uh, we wrote this uh, sample Van Dyke, and George got it to call, and it was not really good, but it, I mean, it was stupid, but... Uh, Carl thought there was enough in it that maybe we should have a meeting with with him and Sheldon Leonard. So simultaneously, Tim Conway was now on McHale's Navy. And so he got us a script on McHale's Navy. And in, in those days, it's like if you did variety, you couldn't do situation comedy. You were very much stratified. And like it's like if you did television or movies, you couldn't do the theater. I always said it was like a cake. Television was at the bottom, movies was in the middle, and the theater was on top. You could fall down the cake, but you couldn't fall up. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you, so to break through to the next level was really hard. So Tim got us this script for uh, McHale's Navy, which we wrote. And incidentally, three weeks ago, I got a check for 37 cents from Guam <laughs> for the McHale's, McHale's Navy, Navy, which I had to send my ex-wife 16 cents. Wow. <laughs> or 17, whatever the hell it was. So I said, go have a party. <laughs> and uh, she... On all the checks that she gets, she calls up the billing department and asks for an accounting. I'm so embarrassed. I said, it's from heaven. You don't deserve it. What? <laughs> you're lucky you're not dead in the street from how mean you were. And you're calling up that girl and Marlo's account saying, how can there be still such legal fees on that girl? And I say, it's for the DVDs which didn't exist when I wrote it. Yeah. The, the technology wasn't there. This is like magic. <laughs> what are you, why are you, just hide it. Don't tell anybody. They'll come, and, they'll come take it away from us because we don't deserve it. Don't you understand? Oh, that's great. So anyway, we're doing the McHale's Navy, and there was a, the, the, the uh, producer was a guy named Cy Rose, Rosen. Who was a very nice guy, but he was such a stickler. Who I worked for later in you life. You did tough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was an, a very irritating voice. Story for another day. Very slow. Yeah. So now we go to Universal for that meeting, and on every page of the script, why did you put "and" in that third speech? Well, because it was a series of things, and it was the last one, and so and so. I said, well, can you kind of find another way to do that? 
what? There is no one. <laughs> <laughs> so now we got there at 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, <laughs> we go to lunch at this Chinese restaurant. And I said to Sam, we're never going to do it. We can't do it. If this is what it's like. And we had turned the script into Carl, too, already at that point, waiting to hear on that. We spent five hours going over a 30-page script. So humiliating, so depressing. And we had an office. (laughs) Everything is a story. We had an office (laughs) that was at the end of a corridor, and it was a little room. And there were a couple of other offices in the way, along the way. And our office was so small that I had to sit in the, lo- in the hallway because Sam would sit at the <laughs> typewriter. And it was about as wide as this. But the big attraction was it had a bathroom. <laughs> the bathroom was bigger. But also over the desk was a huge picture of Mount Fuji with shutters, like <laughs> you could open the, open the shutters and see Mount Fuji. <laughs> and next to us, next to us was Ellis Gold Productions of a guy who handled porn stars. <laughs> now, unfortunately, he was up there, and my back was turned through all the time. Sam could look out, and he's looking out like this, and I, I didn't want to embarrass myself. So anyway, we now get back to the office, and we're just sitting there, and the phone rings, and it's Carl. And I'm not ready to hear this, right? And Sam said, yeah. Oh, hi, Carl. He said, yeah? No kidding. Oh, yeah, tomorrow, yeah, yeah. And I said, what, what? He said, Carl said it's the best script he read. He wants us to come. He's going to give us an office, and we can write as many shows as we can handle. And that was all in the course of, of one day. And, and wasn't the Dick Van Dyke show originally basically the Carl Reiner Yeah, it was story? a pilot that Carl did for himself. But Carl, you know Carl? The uh, blessing. I met him. Uh, Carl a is times, the please. gift of the world. I mean, this man... There is nobody like him in the world. He is the most, I, I, I could take three hours, but he's the funniest, the sweetest, the, the, the most honorable, the toughest. I mean, tough in terms of integrity and stuff. Because the first show we wrote was about them thinking they had the wrong baby. And it ended up, we were at the, you know, this is 1962, and we had this great show, was really funny, was based on the fact that when I had my first child, we got some flowers that were meant for somebody else and some candy. And I said, how do we know we got the right kid? You know, (laughs) there was no DNA. There was, but they didn't use. So there was no way. No. So here we have this thing. And there were hilarious things that Dick did in it. And uh, when we got to the end, we said, we got to have something that everybody knows that it's the right kid. So the only thing you could do was have it be a different ethnic mix. So we always thought, well, we'll use Asian, you know. But Carl said, you know what? Let's make them black. 
well, this was unheard of at that time. I mean, the racial tension in, in, in the country and stuff. So, great. So, he, he went to the, the network, saw the script, and said, well, you can't do that. And he said, why? They said, well, the, uh, the country is going through a change, and I don't think the country is yet ready for a white couple to be making fun of a black couple. And Carl said, no, no, you don't understand. This is the black couple making fun of the white couple. And the guy said, well, they're certainly not ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the funny thing is, when we did the show, there was an audience. And if the ending didn't work, because we didn't really know what what to expect... And if the ending didn't work, we were going to have to reshoot and with an Asian couple or, or whatever. And, and it was really important. And it turned out to be a major important breakthrough in television. That, and that's Carl Reiner and his guts, you know. And uh, we did the show in front of an audience, about 300 people. And I was standing next to Carl. And when the door opens and Dick just does a take... And then he says, uh, uh, come in. And in comes Greg Morris. From Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. And this, I forget the young woman's name, but they come in and there is a deadly silence. <laughs> Long enough for Carl to say to me, oh, shit. <laughs> and then a laugh started that went on for 20 minutes every time we quieted the audience down and did it over again they would start over again <laughs> they we couldn't get the show finished because they kept finding new levels on which it was funny so that was the first Van Dyke show we did but we went from this nightmare in the morning to this incredible experience and we wrote 14 van dyke shows that first season and wrote 48 overall and you know wrote on most of them and produced the last half of the the fifth season because carl went to do the uh oh the russians the russians are coming they turned the show over to you and sam yes and yeah and it was fine mary and dick love it but richard deacon never accepted us richard deacon and rosemary they never liked us and so uh, when we came to the first reading where we were producing the thing, we used to sit at the table, and Carl would sit at one end, and Sam and I would sit at the other end, and Sheldon Leonard, who was the executive, he'd sit on a director's chair behind us. And uh, you could always tell how the show was doing, because Sheldon would, if he didn't like something, he would breathe. <laughs> And we were the only ones that knew that he didn't like it because he was breathing <laughs> on us, you know. Anyway, the first show that we produce, we walk in and uh, we're saying, we're, what are we going to do? We're, we're not going to sit in Carl's seat. We'll just stay in our seats and we'll leave it empty. So that's what we did. And we get there and we start the reading and the phone rings and Richard Deacon picks it up. And he said, uh, just a minute. <laughs> it's for Carl Reiner and he gave me the phone 
the person said, is this Carl Reiner? And I said, no, ma'am, it's not Carl Reiner, but I'm doing the very best I can. <laughs> and that kind of broke the ice. Did we through? Did I? Is it still? I think we have a couple, is it still have a couple of more minutes. <laughs> I forgot what you sound like. <laughs> you haven't asked me anything. Lucky Say you. something. Say something. Most people wish they forget what I sound like. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. The first time I saw Gilbert's act, he was doing a Ted Bessel bit. Oh, Ted And, and I know Bessel. you were friends with Ted Bessel. Ted I'm Bessel. sure Gilbert's interested. Yes. Ted, Be- yes. Ted Bessel was one of the funniest comedians. Wow. He was so funny. I mean, he was one of the funniest people I ever met. And he was this, oh, he was great. He was also a brilliant athlete and a terrific actor. He did that show, uh, A Man's World. Remember A Man's World? Oh. The title sounds... Yeah, it was a bunch of guys living on a, a houseboat and going to college in in the middle of India. Gilbert, you're knowledge. I know. Suddenly, I know. I'm I've embarrassed. I've Jesus. Ask him about and, me and the chimp. He'll know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, that killed Teddy. And for people who, who don't know, uh, Ted Bessel was the boyfriend of Marlo that's Thomas right. on that's Night right. Girl. That's right. And the most popular co-star on television. Every young girl wanted to marry Donald Hollinger. He was the best guy. And he had, it's funny because Teddy had, Teddy had a, a picture. Uh, he had his regular, you know, his, his uh, autographed picture thing. But then he had one made because so much of the show was on over shoulders and stuff with Marlo that he had a pic- his publicity picture from the back <laughs> no one's going to recognize my face. He was great, Teddy. Teddy was terrific. Who were some of the people you've hated in the business? Would you talk about any of them? You know, he's already given you Marty yeah, Allen. Yeah. No, I, no, I, I didn't. I no, hold After it, that. hold it. I didn't. I didn't hate Marty Allen. No. I hated their act. Okay. <laughs> There's a difference. There is. There's a difference. No, there's a difference. I mean... I'll never play this show for Marty. Ted Cruz from Texas. I hate him. I hate his act. There's a difference. Marty Allen, nice man, didn't like his act. You know what I mean? There's a very... You have to differentiate these things. My first wife, the whole package. <laughs> we haven't gotten partway through my career yet. I, can help. <laughs> I think I can help you out with Gilbert's yes. question, though. What? Yes. Someone you worked with in a pilot called uh, uh, Baby, I'm Back. Oh, God, and he, yes. no, he won't listen to this podcast, Bill, yeah. so let no. him yeah. well, I hope. Well, the funny thing, it was Damon Wilson, who was the oh, son yeah. on, on Sanford. Lamont. Son. Lamont yes. Wilson. And so he did uh, a pilot of a show called Baby on Back about a guy who had left his wife and came back and so on. So I remember this. Yes. <laughs> and it, Denise yes. Nicholas. Denise yeah. Nicholas. And it was written by, oh, God, I'm so embarrassed I can't. One of the really terrific women writers at the time, producer writers, who's 
lived with Mort Lockman. Not Trevor Silverman. No, 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 no. It was, uh, at any rate, uh, so he was just awful. And, and, and it was... <laughs> There you go. No, no. Harry, Harry, I'll tell you. I'll tell you Harry, a Harry Crane line that will be the last yeah. thing because it has to do with this. Yeah. But anyway, I go in, and it was early on. I mean, Sanford and Son had been on, but there weren't a lot of uh, shows with blacks and, and, and white people running them. You know what I mean? Uh, Bernie Ornstein and Saul Turtletaub did uh, Sanford and Son, and they got along great because Red was just a terrific guy. And but Demond Wilson, Lamont, Demond, Demond, yeah. Demond Wilson. Or I walk in, dummy. I walk in, and he's he's being he's being really unpleasant. And everybody is taking their cue from him, you know. And we start reading, and I start talking, and he's looking, and he's saying, "Yeah, uh huh, uh huh." I said, "Let's get something straight. You know how to be black. I know how to be funny." <laughs> you take care of that. You take care of that. And I won't un- interfere. And I'll take care of this. And you don't interfere. So at any rate, he carried a gun. Wait. He, he, he carried a gun because he was such a big star. He had to protect himself. <laughs> so the producer... What's her name? Oh, God. Why can't I remember? So anyway, She'll never speak to you again. After this. She, says, she says to me, I understand that uh, Damon is carrying a gun. I said, yeah, apparently so. She said, well, tell him he can't. I said, I said no. The producer tells him he can't. The director tells him how to hold it. So anyway, they were doing they were doing a uh, Dean Martin roast in Vegas that Harry Crane did all the head writing. Of. He was big with Harry, with Dean and Frank. They loved him. So Damon Wilson comes down, and now they got Orson Welles on the panel. They got uh, they got Frank Sinatra. They have Stephen Eady. They they have the whole world, and they had them up for some reason. Damon, he comes down. His limo isn't big enough. He won't leave the airport. He wants a stretch. They got to get him stretch. He gets to the thing. His suite is it? He is nothing but a pain in the ass. So finally, and then the writing, he didn't like the jokes and everything. And so Harry says to him, Demont, I see the way you're acting here. You're a pretty big star, right? He said, you bet your ass I am. He said, you he says, you know, and you know a lot of big stars. He said, yeah. He says, you have pictures with them? He said, yeah. He said, keep them for the wall of your car wash. <laughs> wow. Great stuff, Bill. <laughs> this, this has been the fastest and easiest show I've ever done. We didn't do anything. I'm having yeah. a good time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you don't want to hear more about the marriage? I'll <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to come back. You don't want to hear about the fact that it ended in an improvisation in an acting class? Okay. Next time. No, <laughs> next time. I'm not going to tell you that. Next time. 
Will you tell us about Orson Welles oh next time? Oh, my God. And, uh, oh, uh, yes. And everybody oh, in God. We, we didn't scratch the surface no. of the things no. you have to no, talk about. No, it's true. I just have had the most wonderful, wonderful experiences. I mean, I really have. And uh, when you say anybody I didn't like, I really, I can't, I can't think. Of, well, I didn't like Sidney Beckerman. <laughs> Between now and the time you come back, could you, could you make a list of people you didn't like? I like Sidney Beckerman. Well, this is... <laughs> Finally, I get a chance to talk on my own podcast. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> this is the amazing, colossal podcast... I'm Gilbert Gottfried with Frank Santo Padre, uh, and we've been talking to the great Bill Persky. And it has been so much fun. I've learned so much about you, Gilbert. <laughs> I mean, there are things, there are things that came out that I think probably were hard and very personal, very personal. And I don't know, I don't know if some of your best friends know the things that you've revealed to me here today and I'm I'm honored and I'll I'm going to keep everything you told me just between us. Thanks Billy. Okay. Thank we you. love you.